Uh, good, good morning, or I suppose you are in the process of transforming this into a good afternoon. I hope you are enjoying your lunch. Thank you for coming to uh, our, uh, yes, I know. <laughs> Uh, thank you for coming to uh, the, this installment of this series we have organized with the Merchant Center. I'm Abril Trigo, director of the Center for Latin American Studies. Um, first of all, because then I forget and Carol uh, will punish me, yeah, and, and I don't want that, uh, please uh, don't forget to fill the form, the, the survey that you have received at the door. Uh, this is in, very important for, this is uh, important information for us to organize better events and more events and to have better food. So, uh, okay. Um, so, please do that. Thank you. Well, uh, it's a privilege to me and an honor, and uh, I'm very glad to uh, introduce Saskia Sassen um, uh, as a lecture, lecturer of this series. Uh, I suppose, I'm sure you all know Saskia Sassen. You have read some of his, her books or articles, and you have studied her in the classes. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to be very brief with a very, very few words about some landmark uh, uh, pieces of information. Um, uh, Saskia, uh, Saskia Sassian actually is, uh, I will say, a global citizen or a global person. She embodies uh, globalization in many ways because... Uh, um, she was born and, 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 and raised in Latin America and, and, and then uh, moved to Europe from parents who, who came from Europe to Latin America. And then she studied in France, in Italy, in the U.S., and then has been working in different places in the U.S. and, you know, in Europe. And she's moving like a globetrotter everywhere all the time. Uh, we are actually very happy that she actually was able to make it today because there was a big confusion with the, with the tickets, airfare tickets, and she was able to come very, very late last night, and still she's here with us. So I do appreciate that effort uh, from her part. Now, um, Saskia uh, is uh, Robert Lynn, professor of sociology, in the, at uh, Columbia University and Centennial Visiting Professor of uh, Political Economy at the School of Economics in London School of Economics. Uh, she has written extensively on globalization and, 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 and in some of his books have been extremely influential and have changed in many ways the way uh, globalization is studied, the way globalization is perceived she uh, actually has complicated things, yeah. which is the right thing to do things, or the right thing, the right way to do uh, 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 academic academic writing. And um, now uh, some some notions like the notion of global cities, 
which she introduced in the early 90s, is a kind of uh, common staple in the, in, 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 in the profession across disciplines. Her work is absolutely transdisciplinary in many, many ways. I mean, although she is a sociologist by training, uh, she works uh, with economics, she works with uh, geography, she works with urban uh, architecture and urban planning, and, and uh, even uh, with, from cultural studies in many ways. Um, many, many people from cultural studies read your books and enjoy them and apply things you say there and criticize other things you say there too. Okay. Oh, anyway, uh, without further ado, I will um, leave Saskia Sassing with you. Please join me to welcoming her to high school. Well, it's an enormous pleasure for me to be here. I have a sort of a croak of a voice today because I was hit by I don't know what all. So um, I hope that I'm projecting my voice at all. Can you hear me or not? Because I feel like it's buried somewhere in my chest. Um, so if you can hear me, let me then start and to say that I'm just delighted to be here. I want to thank Abril Grigo and Carolyn, Carol Rosman, who has been fantastic in, in helping me uh, get here, etc. And it's just an enormous pleasure. I always see these small academic events as... Uh, as an occasion to have a conversation. And yes, do criticize me. I am very used to being criticized. Since the first time I published anything, I was hit from all sides. And I have now decided I am such an optimist, you know, that I try to give it all positive valence. So I've decided that being so criticized is actually a good thing. Doesn't mean that I don't suffer a bit, all right? Believe me. But a bit, I suffer a bit less now that I'm older than when I first started, you know, when you feel this ultimate vulnerability. Um, ah, there is a clock. Now, I, um, I want to talk about some of the research that I'm doing now. In, uh, there is a book that came out, this territory book, etc. cetera. And, um, and let me just start by saying that what I want to talk about operates in a space that is marked by two vectors. One vector is the notion that this is a time when stable meanings are becoming unstable. And because I have trouble with the standard vocabulary of the globalization literature, I try to recode what it is that we're trying to name when we use the language, the vocabulary of globalization. So at its most abstract, and as a way of opening up to conditions of transformation that may not be in your face global, this notion then of a time when stabilized meanings become unstable. Mind you, we have gone through such periods regularly. Inevitably, we name each of those periods of transformation with very specific language. The French Revolution, the this, the that, whatever, the shift from medieval to nation states. And that's okay. Same thing today with the question of globalization. I'm not criticizing the term. I, I use the term. But as a researcher, it does trouble me because it closes things. Um, and in a way, the two master categories within which the current transformation plays out 
the national and the global um, are precisely that. They are master categories. And by that, I mean that on the one hand, they have enormous power to explain, to illuminate with enormous clarity, like a light at night on the street, right? A circle of light. But in that process itself, they produce a rather vast penumbra. And I realized, mind you, ex post, this was not ex ante, that in my 30 years, it feels more like 150 years of <laughs> research, I have made my fieldwork site, both conceptual and at the level of empirical research, but also a conceptual field site, that penumbra, rather than the center. So I've not been that interested in studying WTO and IMF in their current global incarnation. That, that has somehow, I think it's very important, and luckily there are battalions doing research on that. But it's not what moves me. You know, at my stage, when you're moved to do research, it has to be a very, it's a strong force that guides you. And I must say, the IMF and the WTO never were that interesting to me, except when they hit the ground in very specific sites and under very particular conditions. And at that point, they are, their power is in fact unsettled or reinforced, it's a variable, by those local conditions. At that point, I get interested. So I have had this tension from the moment go that I started to work on globalization. So in that sense, back to that abstract proposition, unstable meanings, or when stable meanings become unstable, Part of my argument is that the national and the global are actually becoming unstable meanings. That does not mean that they disappear, not at all. But that what we think we're naming needs to be repositioned. And one very quick, dirty way of putting it is that they capture much less of the transformation that is taking place than their overarching, almost totalizing, uh, meanings suggest. So that that instability of the terms of the master categories comes a bit from the possibility that they might be capturing much less than we tend to think. Because when you set the global and the national, you've more or less said it all. Except maybe if you are, I don't know, in some very different field from the fields that I navigate in. But when you're dealing with institutions of the real world, you know, it's very difficult to leave a lot out when you said na national and, and global. Now, the second vector, and this also frames this new book of mine, is so if you want to deal with what those two categories are trying to capture, uh, and you reject those two categories, where do you find your conceptual foothold? Because otherwise it's like you say, no, not you, and then you sort of tip over and you fall over. By the way, this is not the mic that is working, right? I just realized that. Can I stay here also or not? Do I have to stand here? Okay, because I tend to start moving as I talk. Um, so then if you, you know, you need a conceptual foothold, otherwise you fall off the conceptual cliff. And so at that point, I then move back to three categories, which are also pretty powerful categories. Territory authority rights. The logic for the choice is that they're both, in my interpretation at least, transhistorical. They exist in every complex form of organization, sort of social, political, etc., organization. 
tribal society, old empires, new empires, nation states, medieval times, whatever. At the same time, and this is where it becomes interesting, they're profoundly historical because they assume very particular meanings in each of these settings. And secondly, their interaction varies markedly. So for instance, just as a quick example, in the nation state, territory, you know, the, the sort of the traditional notion of the nation state, a European formation, etc., that then spreads, uh, territory is dominant. Out of exclusive authority over a territory, the national state can presume to be the source of law, can presume to be the source of legitimation, can <coughs> presume to, to declare the content of membership. So membership, identity, territory, security, they become national. In medieval times, territory, medieval European times, territory is not dominant. It's authority. A given territory is subject to multiple systems of authority. With all the interesting, and the medieval times are really interesting, European medieval times, uh, in terms of all the contradictions. Um, I ask myself, for instance, today, uh, global electronic markets in finance, it's dominant. It's not territory, nor is it rights, <laughs> God forbid. It's actually authority. It's a way of injecting their logic through a process of authoritativeness, the market knows best, whatever that is at its most elementary, into all kinds of systems, which are supposedly public policy, you know, public, etc. So, so, and not to mention the insertion of a financial logic in more and more economic sectors, which then become financialized, even though they are making, you know, whatever, widgets, not necessarily finance. So the question of authority is dominant. In the, in the human rights regime, clearly, it is not. Authority. It's a question of rights. And at the end, our body is the source of those rights, not the sovereign, even if we still need the national state to enforce that regime. So, so now, when I, when I chose territory, authority, and rights, you know, I do say, and I think I say that right there in the introduction, I say that other people, especially from other parts of the world, because the kind of research that I do presumes quite a bit of knowledge, and not just knowledge as a student, but knowledge of having lived it, of having understood the different versions that exist of, say, European history, etc. And so I cannot presume to understand the world. I just don't. I, I am honest with myself. I don't. I could have a very superficial mechanical analysis, but not sort of a deeper understanding. So I do argue that there might be researchers, and I would hope that they are, that there are, who come along and say, you know what, uh, I think you need to add, I just had that at a conference actually, I can't remember what it was that they added, I should remember that, but they said, you know, you should really add this fourth element. And they were coming from another kind of uh, historical geography, space, etc. And others may say, drop authority, you know, whatever. So, I'm just saying that those were the three ones that work for me, and I think of them, territory, authority, and rights, as capabilities, the collective productions. They come out of struggle. They get refined, they get changed, etc. And again, their interaction, their valence, what is dominant in one time and, and what is dominant at another time also varies. Finally, in this trans-historical notion, uh, 
the idea that you could have foundational change even if some of those core capabilities keep on existing. And even if it is easy to think, well, if those are there, not much has changed. That is often said with respect to the national state and the globalization debates. The national state is still so important, so big, so globalization must not mean much. In fact, my argument is that, and that is why I used to illustrate territory authority right, is to say that you, know, you could still have all of these but that does not preclude that foundational, albeit partial, change has happened. And so it, that, again, gives you flexibility as an analyst. It allows you to detect the finer grain, if you want, of foundational transformations, rather than sort of, oh, you know, the, we, run, we ran the Bastille, that kind of version of social change, which, by the way, was just one incident in a trajectory of making that thing that we call the French Revolution, but it becomes the iconic image. So barring elimination and destruction, even if you don't have you know, the elimination of certain cap capabilities or their destruction, like in this case, the destruction of the state apparatus, you could still have foundational change in this type of analysis. But what you need to do is you need to then understand how does this capability, whether it's the state or whether it is territory, authority, etc., how does it function today? It can be there, but be part of an organizing logic that repositions it and repositions, alters, if you want, the interactions between these three. Now, um, with the question, let me just start with some sort of practical, more empirical aspects. With the question of, uh, <coughs> of globalization, when you look very, very strictly through a formal eye. There's very little formal globalization. Very little. We have only two formal global laws. The rest is a mix of I don't know what all. Now, that means, that is one way of capturing attention between a notion that we have, we were still very much victims of formalized apparatuses, conditions, in order to register their existence as a significant factor. And the tension is between that and the fact that we have a lot of globality, even though we have only two global, formal global laws. And that means that the question of the global then emerges again as a problematic, as a question. Where is it? What is it? In what clothes is addressed? You know, and from there, now I'm jumping very, very quickly, one of my hypotheses then became in this project that I started to work on years ago, really, is um, what are all the possible sites where the global can get constituted? What are the diverse clothing in which it can dress itself? You know, does it have to be self-evidently global for it to be global? You know, a whole series of questions which then also call for a kind of research. <coughs> Ethnographies, also hermeneutics, I mean, you can just see it. It just opens up the domain of how do we study this to much more than, say, the empirical social sciences would allow for the very sort of, uh, and I think that is an important uh, fact, I think, actually, that we need to open it up. Now, in that sense, I really apologize. You can tell that I am not totally, if I am coughing and falling apart in front of you, 
I'm not like this always, but today I am like this. So um, it then also means that the national may well be a site for the constituting of the global. But it may then also be the case that it is constituted as the global, that it is global, but that it is, doesn't look that way. In other words, you need to interpret, you need to move in, you need to really understand, uh, might this be global? Um, I, when I was at Chicago, you know, I just was at Chicago for nine years. I just left last year, and uh, I had a lot of very good doctoral students that, um, that would come and say, I want to study the globalizing of X. And I always said, you know, don't assume the global is there. It was like the opposite, because this is the opposite version, right, that they all think, ah, oh, the global, the global. And you, you put yourself in a place where you say that you have dis to discover is there a global here, even though dressed in the clothes of the national? You, you know what I'm getting at, right? And in fact, these 18 doctorals, I can believe that I did 18 dissertations at Chicago, you know, because those students are militant in demanding your time and your attention. Um, and so they wound up producing these extraordinary dissertations. I now made a book with chapters from each of them uh, that I will be happy to send to the center, and maybe it can be put there on a... And, and they all start with complex environments where the question of the global needs to be discovered. You, know, you have to build the bridge, the, the, the methodological bridge and the bridge that gives you the criteria for interpretation to say, wow, yes, the global is also here. Uh, and, and, I, and I called the book, it's an edited collection clearly with all these students, uh, Deciphering the Global. So that also gives you a sense of, you know, where I'm actually going at. Now, the two laws, I realize I never told you. I'm, of course, dying to find out if you know what I'm talking about. It's almost irresistible for me to take bits if you want. Um, do you know anybody? <laughs> All right, I, I, won't, I don't want to do this to you. But anyhow, one of them is the International Criminal Court, which is, of course, a very weak regime right now. It's in... It's at the first stage. It's a trajectory, but right now it's very, very early on. And uh, the other one is WTO law, especially through TRIPS. Why are they global? They are global because the national, the sovereign, the language of international law for the state, you don't have to be a queen, okay? You realize that right? when I say sovereign. <laughs> the sovereign does not have to represent you. You can go straight. A firm, and we have all read about it, especially, you know, in the United States under the NAFTA, a firm can go straight to a lower order court in a locality, and, may, and hundreds did, and keep on doing, and claim that its free trading rights are violated by local environmental regulations. That, that's sort of the iconic case that you've all heard about. And in that sense, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be an interstate. It's not a supranational thing. Now, WTO is ambiguous because it's partly supranational, and at the same time, the TRIPS is really a global law, so it isn't ambiguous. And criminal court, same thing, international criminal court. You can go straight as an individual. You can make a lawsuit, and in fact, you're against dictators, torturers, etc., all over. Uh, you don't need your state to represent you in an international forum. Now, you know probably that, that uh, several such lawsuits are right now being prepared by citizens and by some judges, like Judge Garzón, you know, <laughs> the famous judge in Spain, against some of our 
politicians, you know, of the last 10 years. Um, so whatever we may think of that, um, the point is that I, as a citizen, can make a global jurisdiction, and I do not need my state to represent me. Uh, an emergent condition in this are the new constitutions. Some of you may know this. The constitutions that were done in Latin America after that. This would be almost a third case. The problem is that it isn't really operative. Um, uh, the, the constitutions that were made in Latin America after the bloody dictatorships, you know, of the 70s and the 80s, apartheid, Africa post-apartheid, and Eastern and Central Europe post-Soviet. These constitutions, all, all of them, and they are engendered by different conditions. You know, apartheid Africa is different from the Latin American dictatorship. It's different from the uh, post-Soviet, uh, or the pre-Soviet, uh, not post-Soviet, um, condition there. Um, they all contain this clause, and the clause which is developed at different lengths and details in different constitutions. Here you really see cultures of constitution writing. In the Brazilian case, I don't know if anybody saw these new constitutions, it goes on and on and on and on because they deal with everything, the indigenous people, the Afro-Brazilians, the also women. And, very, and I think it's an indication of the strength of global civil society in Brazil that it just, in the case of the Polish constitution, it's very pithy. It doesn't say very much. Anyhow, the clause, and this is the point of a semi-global law contained in this national constitution format, um, the clause basically says that the sovereign, even if legitimate, which in the case of a liberal democracy means, you know, elected, whatever, cannot presume to be the exclusive representative of its people in international fora. Now, I don't know if you can hear. That's my language, okay? It's just, I, I, it's a synthetic rendering of what that clause says. Now, I don't know if you can hear how revolutionary that clause is. It represents a break with what is the achievement of the French and American revolutions, which is to say to the sovereign, sovereign, you are not divine. I am you and you are me. A major achievement right? in the context of European history, etc. This clause says, sovereign, you cannot presume to represent me in international fora. The question international fora is a conditionality because that's where the issue hits the wall. Can you represent yourself directly or do you have to go through? You know, In domains where the state has authority, you cannot represent yourself directly. You have to go through the supranational, international, whatever. Now, um, this behind this clause lies, um, most importantly, the struggles by indigenous people in Brazil and in Canada, but Canada was not part of the new constitution writing. Uh, its, its Supreme Court, of course, has granted this right to its indigenous people, so that's a different channel through which this happened, which also signals to me that it is part of the history in the making. This is now happening this claim towards direct representation, you know, in international fora. But um, the indigenous people in Brazil, the blacks in apartheid Africa, which did not feel represented by the state, and of course the, the Eastern and Central European states that did not feel 
quite represented by the power sphere, etc. So you can see a certain kind of making of that transformation coming from many different angles, but widening up in that place. Uh, this is the kind of thing, you know, a law can be pretty, powerful, fantastic, but if it's just sitting on a shelf, nothing happens. You have to use these laws. And right now, indigenous people are the main users, the ones who have a powerful substantive rationality to want to use that clause. Now, I want to start having given you that setting which signals something about the global, right, that in its most formalized there is very little of it. At the same time, we know there is a lot of it. And so how to find a framing, how to find a methodology, how to find criteria for interpretation that allow you to actually understand, you know, where is it, how do we measure it, etc. So, so one, one way of thinking about it is that in the current period, what we're seeing is the emergence of novel assemblages of bits and pieces of territory authority and rights. These new global jurisdictions represented by WTO law and by ICC law, the International Criminal Court, are exactly that. They take out, they reassemble certain elements so that I, as a citizen, can make a global jurisdiction. I can sue, etc., etc. Uh, the same thing with WTO law. Now, these are very formalized elements. The question then is, how much non-formalized is there also around? And, you know, how do we begin to work with that? Now, I wanted to just show you some slides. I, I think we need to put these lights down because otherwise you're not going to see it. Okay, there we go. Now, I just want to, this is just, I've just selected this because I'm assuming that immigration is a subject that many people work on. Anybody who does Latin America seems to also work on immigration, etc. But that first, the new transnational class of professionals, and here the notion is, you know, the, the, um, the spaces, institutional, ideational, tactical, for producing the migrant subject. And one of the questions for me is how do we capture the variability? The immigrant is a profoundly constructed subject. The citizen, in a way, might say, has some elementary claim, especially the third generation born in a place. You know, there's a certain elementary claim uh, that comes from being there. The immigrant is a subject produced in policy and in law. And when I give a lecture that I do on, you know, who's the rights-bearing subject? The citizen and the alien. They're both foundational institutions for membership in our society. But the most difficult one to explain is the immigrant. Because what we call immigrant could be called in so many other ways. You know? And so here, one of the things here that comes an additional element is that how do we begin to capture then the variability of the subject? And coming back to the assemblages bit that I was just introducing, the new transnational class of professionals, you know that the, the free trade agreements now have produced what everybody is still saying cannot be produced, which is a migrant with formalized, portable rights. I mean, you know, this is an, a subject that, especially those who deal in the question of global justice and immigration or, you know, rights and immigration, et cetera, have said, why can't we give them rights? And everybody says, you can't develop portable rights at that level. Yes, you can. We have done it. We just don't call them migrants. 
we call them something else. And when you look at the treaties, how many of you have recently looked at the NAFTA or the WTO? But you realize there are dozens and dozens of free trade treaties. They all have these core chapters. It's basically a bit of a boilerplate. Uh, you know, on finance, on telecommunication, whatever it might be. And in there always is a set of clauses that, that actually spells out the rights of the service deliverer. Now, the service deliverer, that language, is not language that seeks to hide, mind you. The service deliverer could be an electronic data pipe. You deliver your specialized accounting service electronically. It could also be a firm, a product that a firm makes. They can also be people. And what has become clear over the last 20 years is that there are more and more actually you know, the talent question is more and more a part of it. So a lot of that service delivery clause that spells out rights, and in fact, the rights at some point become very personal. You know it refers to a person. Also in the NAFTA, I remember when the NAFTA was negotiating, everybody was saying, uh, I mean, the, the key player said, no, this is not about immigration. Hell, yes, it is about immigration. And each of the core chapters has this migration clause in it. You know, they have rights for this and for that. They can only not run in national politics or uh, serve, you know, in some sort of governmental function. So, so they cannot vote in national politics. So, so now how is this transnational class of professionals? It actually is produced through an assemblage of bits and pieces of, you know, established regimes. So, you know, the, this portable, again, the image is the migrant with formalized portable rights, the free trade agreement becomes a kind of overlay across all the other elements, you know, the, the countries involved, the sectors involved, etc. And, um, and in a way, and this is a hypothesis that I'm working on now, uh, but this is also captured by this, uh, by this example. Um, as we have downgraded, if you want, or diluted the effect of borders for certain sectors. For others, we know we have strengthened it, right? But for everything that is the professionals and the investors and I don't know what all, and the notion then, the standard language is the weakening of borders. Yes, sure, but we have produced, and this, I have a whole list of these, we have produced a transversal bordering or bordered spaces. These people, these new transnationals, they operate in a highly bordered space. Only certain people have access to it, those who are going through the WTO, the, the, the basic, the free trade agreements. But that's a highly bordered space. It's, and so I make this distinction between the traditional border and new borderings or bordering capacities. We have developed in these last 20 years, as we have downgraded many functions of the traditional borders, no doubt, you know, deregulation, private, all of them. We have also multiplied these transversal borderings. Now, these are bordered spaces, as in this professional transnational class, which cut across, you know, a lot of the other borders. So, yes, there, there's freedom of circulation, but you can't get in there. You either in, are in, you know, you either have a legitimate claim to be in there or you're completely out. So, basically, what we have done is, vis-a-vis -vis the working class migrants, etc., we have said, no, we can't, you know, we can't give you these portable rights. By the way, there is a parallel thing that's happening now, especially in the, the first time I heard about it was in the UK, 
that that um, workers and, and firms, you know how there are a series of rights that workers have that attach like pensions and I don't know what all, the health, uh, you know, that attach to the firm. It's a relationship between firm and worker. And there is now a movement in the UK to make the worker the carrier of all of those rights that now come through the channel of the employment relation so that you would create a worker with portable rights that can move across sectors, you know, which is sort of a nice uh, idea. Now, I don't want to dwell on all of this, but you can see the point that each one of these subjects, the business visa, immigrant, the family, they, they, they are produced, besides the individuality and all of that, they are also produced in a certain institutional space. And some of these spaces, not all of these, uh, are also are, they have a, they have a, a sense that the, the high-tech visa worker of being part of these new kind of bordered spaces, which really represent a new assemblage of bits of territory, authority, and rights. Now here I have this other, but I don't want to dwell on this now, but you know, also again the subject in a global world and how these subjects are produced. Um, now, I wanted to give a second example besides these professional classes that gets at some of these issues. And that is, do, do people remember the, the controversy around the Danish cartoons? People know that, right? The cartoons of the prophet. By the way, I was thinking either in Dutch or in Spanish. For anyway, that's misspelled, okay? Prophet is P H, but profit in Dutch, and I'm Dutch, you know? And profita, I, I put an F without doubt. But um, I just see that now, I see it, God, no. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in five languages. Uh, which means that I don't speak one language perfectly. You know, as an academic, that can make for trouble. But um, so the language either becomes the zone of terror or the zone of experimentation. And I think I've just thrown myself into the experimentation zone. Anyhow, the, the, the point here, there are a couple of points I want to make. And one of them is that these, these cartoons are published and for six months, yes, there's a bit of twittering and a bit of diplomatic tam-tams going on. Not much, and there is a Muslim community, and you know that was part of the this sort of low key, and um, so. But then the BBC, <laughs> a global news organization, reports on this, and then it became a global event. Now I I'm, I just want to move very quickly through this. This is not I gave this this in a talk that I did on religion and globalization, but I, I just am trying to now just to get at the heart of the, the matter that I'm trying to communicate. Um, I, I want to extract two positives out of this very messy, messy conflict, okay? So the two positives are the right to freedom of expression, which is a much admired right in the West, and respect for religion. Mind you, a lot of the debate did not happen in terms of two positives, okay? It was like very, very. And, um, and really the point I'm trying to make is that you can't understand the uproar that followed afterwards if you don't recognize that a much larger assemblage was shaped, wherein the freedom of expression as law, simply it ceased to be just about law or about a law. It was much more than that. It was just, once you recognize that it was inserted in a much larger assemblage that destabilized the meaning of law, you begin to make sense of it. Uh, I mean, some of this included a French, you know, we all know that case, a French publication that was going broke and decided to publish the cartoons. And then, hey, they stopped going broke, so to say, you know, there's a, a global event. Um, 
And the same thing with, with respect of religion, you know, the, what happens when sort of the, the Muslim, global Muslim networks that are a mix of networks suddenly become active after, six months after the original publication, all right, when it becomes this global event, it was no longer just about religion. There was a war on Iraq, etc. all of those elements. So I see that, that is part of this informal globality, you see. A lot of stuff that is happening that it's basically informal. It is profoundly global. But you've got to find the conceptual space within which you can show the, the contents of that globality, precisely because it is informal. By the way, clearly I'm using informal not as in, in violation of the law or criminal, okay? I'm just informal means not formalized. And mind you, I have a whole bit uh, in, this, in this book also, a chapter that's like 100 pages long. It might as well have been a little book. Um, where I also try to understand the kind of need for informalities, informal transactions, informal redefinitions at the heart of very formalized institutions like the national state, like the executive branch of government, which is in the forefront of interactions with the global. You know, our legislature is much more domestic than the executive branch. And I recently had the occasion to keynote a, a, a law meeting at the University of Michigan Law School where I was, you know, it was about territory. So they asked me to do the keynote, and I was sort of talking about these things, about how much is not formalized, and how interested I was in then hearing the next day it was all the lawyers speaking. You know, and lawyers need people like, like us, you know, and they can do a job on you. But in fact, in fact, they, they were saying, and there were people who were actively involved in, say, the fisheries dispute, these de facto global events, like think of, you know, fisheries. Um, and they said, we could not function. They are involved in the trading rights and contestation. We could not function if we just stuck to the formal law. We need a lot of sort of informal transacting. And, and we have seen this also, again, as part of a trajectory. You know, when globalization begins to happen, you have um, a whole debate, a reemergent debate about competition policy, what we call antitrust in this country. And that started with very informal meetings, where people just begin to say, well, how, how are we going to deal with this? You needed that in order to build a global corporate economy. Um, and a lot of what now are part of, you know, like international accounting standards, they emerge in this sort of informal way out of need and necessity. And then they become more formalized instruments, if you want. Now, back to a more general, Back to a more general level. How much time do I have? I can barely see that clock. I am speaking very. So one way of, of framing this is that what we have during the national state period, which really comes to a sort of that period of total dominance, never absolute, but really strong, that um, it's sort of when the globalization phase that begins in the 1980s you know, takes off. You begin to see this unsettling, if you want. And what we have then, the, the, the project, if you want, of the national state is a centripetal correspondence of territory, authority, and rights. Um, one scale aggregates a lot of stuff. And <coughs> what I already said, by the way, TARS, you know, it's a territory, authority, and rights. So my husband, who likes art and culture, said, why didn't you call it arts, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and some very more punky friends of my son 
said, why don't you call it rats? <laughs> I sort of like that one, I must say. Anyhow, so I already talked about this final point here, that this notion that elements of tar are becoming reassembled into novel global configurations. Um, now, these alterations, for me, as I said way at the beginning, they take place both within the nation state and also between. Um, and so, second point, what was bundled up and experienced as a unitary condition, the national assemblage of tar, now increasingly reveals itself to be a set of distinct elements with variable capacities for becoming denationalized. I do use this term, you know, denationalized, which is not a very elegant term, but uh, it's an attempt to capture that which is not self-evidently national nor self-evidently global but is part of this current transformation. It happens mostly inside the national. And one way of naming it is a process of denationalizing, often in very specialized ways, often in very obscure ways, denational, denationalizing what was historically constructed as national. In the term, I'm also keen on keeping a connection to the question of the national. I think that the, 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 the elephant in any discussion of the global today the elephant in any of those is the national. This notion that somehow the global represents overcoming the national and we can compare it with medieval times, no. I really think we've got to deal with the fact that for 100 years at least we produced this regulatory state, etc., which is the better side of the national state. So anyhow, this term denationalization then is trying to capture a lot of stuff that is part of a foundational transformation, I argue, that happens inside the national often still dressed in the clothing of the national. A lot of the monetary policies and the fiscal policies that were passed by government after government after government, beginning in the 1980s, exploding in the 1990s, going on now in this last decade, um, they were national policies. You know, They were passed, but they are part of the global. But so how do you name that? Because they're not global, those policies. Nor are they fully national if we want to keep any meaning for the national. It's particular fiscal policies. Not all fiscal policies, you know, that a Ministry of the Treasury might pass, Ministry of Finance, or particular monetary policies. Not all the policies that, that a central bank might be working on. Um, so then I come up with this term, which I don't know, you know, I think it designates what it's trying to name. Now, uh, I wanted to, so wrapping it up, in a way you could speak about organizing logics, the way these, in my case, territory authority and rights get assembled, and the centripetal scaling of the modern nation state, which is marked by one master narrative, is very much a centripetal kind of, and the global begins to disaggregate this, you know, so it's a different organizing logic. Now, not everything that is happening, a lot of the denationalizing, you can't quite fit under this either-or thing. You know, it's in that in-between space. I, I wanted to talk about some of these novel assemblages, but I'm, I'm, I'm out of time. I think I should probably just end now, Avril, huh? because um, let me just, actually, I'm just going to find, uh, hopefully, a blank. You see all the things I want to talk about. Um, I, I just wanted just to... to to emphasize this last point that I was saying about denationalization, my final comment. You know, we all, we know that, that there are a lot of global firms, right? In fact, we count them, 277,000, the multinationals. Uh, strictly speaking, coming back to the formal I, there is no such legal persona 
as a global firm. It doesn't exist. The Europeans have been trying for decades to produce the legal persona of the European firm. It hasn't worked. They have just added a few instrumentalities, but there is no such thing as it. So then the question is, what is this firm that we call multinational, that we call global firm? I always use the term global firms, but it is actually an informal designation. What has happened is, coming back to denationalization, is the work of state after state after state around the world, 170 plus vis-a-vis -vis this regime of global firms that have denationalized certain aspects of their institutional spaces, of their legal uh, uh, you know, instruments, etc., to make these ultimately foreign firms, if you want, operate as if they were global. Now, what is extraordinary is that talk about the making of the global. It took 170-plus countries. Well, it didn't, I shouldn't say it took. It happened through 170 countries, each using the particularities of its national law, its national institutions, to produce what then becomes a standardized space of operation, a very rarefied space. This is not a thick space, okay? And so you have these firms that can conduct themselves as if they were global. And my interest is clearly in recovering, you know, this work of making the global. And in that sense, it also sort of brings in the question of the state that states have participated in the making of the global, especially the executive branch of government. Um, and that today, when we speak about uh, nationalism resurgent, because taxpayers' money is being used to rescue national banks, it's just wrong. Yes, they're using national taxpayers' money, but it's to rescue a global financial system. It's not a rescue. Citicor is not an American bank. 30% is owned by Arab investors. Two sovereign, no, the 30%. You know. So anyhow, I'm just trying to, this is more of this work of, I've been, I've been blogging, you know, the notion of blogging. I mean, I, I don't mean the word, I mean the notion. I've been blogging the financial crisis. You know, there is this one person who's blogging the Bible. You know, so blogging X, whatever the X you're blogging, it's a very particular way of working yourself through an issue, right? So I've been blogging, the Huffington Post asked me, I find it very difficult to do my, uh, they ask every week, I said, no way. Once a month, boy, is that tough. But anyhow, I've been doing it once a month, blogging the financial crises. And so, again, and, and I get a lot of the responses because Huffington is really, I love reading it, but frankly, the communication part, wow! <laughs> That's my basic comment that I get back, you know, it's a bit elementary, so. I don't even try to answer now in my blog. But in terms of blogging the financial crises, these are the kinds of issues, you know, that I try to, to make clear. You know, what are we talking about? There is a bit of nationalism, certainly with trade, but not with what is happening here. So then again, how do we name this? And one way of naming it is to say that deep inside the national, you have these denationalizing dynamics, very partial and often very difficult to detect because they continue to be clothed as I said at the beginning, in the dress of the national. Thank you very much. Well, we have 30 minutes for, 25 minutes for some questions and comments. Yes. Oh, yeah. Can you also introduce, you may know each other.
but Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, very good. Very good, very good. Very, very impressive question, I must say. Um, no, I really. <laughs> so, so, first, I have, like, in my introduction, page five, something very early on, the first time I use the term assemblage, similarly with capability. These are terms of art, and if you want to avoid using them, in the term of art meaning, you've got to put your cards on the table. And both of them have become terms of art. The easier term, just to explain my, how I unsettle the term of art, um, is of course capability. Capability in a Martia sense analysis then picked up by Martha Nussbaum is positive. And I argue that no. Let's open it up into a variable. What might be positive time one, space one, might turn out to be not so very positive time two, space, whatever, right? Plus, I also think we need to recognize that there are negative capabilities. You know, there are cap negative here is normative statement. So I want to take it out of the normative, right? Now, assemblage, I say very explicitly, I want the, I want the working word. I don't want a construct, and I don't want the term of art. So all the, the well, I overlap a bit with Deleuze and Guattari, you know, but uh, I really don't want that. And I say explicitly, I do not locate my theorization on the term assemblage, which is what it is in the term of art. It is a theorization. There are assumptions, there are propositions. And I'm trying, I'm trying to keep it open. So for me, I, I didn't maybe quite say that here, but there's a lot of multivalence in all of this. You know, I open up a lot of stuff into variables, and that then becomes an inquiry. So I use the term assemblage to get at something where you, for instance, cannot establish closure very easily. In other words, and that, that's where the networks then also might. But it doesn't have to be networks. You know, it's not that networks is sort of a synonym for the way I use assemblage. No, it isn't. That's a question also. But, I mean, in a lot of the social sciences, closure is given by the nation state. We have our statistics, are that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that when I talked at the beginning of stable meanings are becoming unstable, that also comes with a methodological obligation, which is how do we deal with the fact that the closures which we have used in order to develop our methodologies and especially our data sets, that those closures may be far more problematic today. You have that whenever you work with cities, you have that too. The cities have grown, because, you know, I mean... The, the older definitions no longer, the administrative definitions don't hold. So for me, assemblage is a way of capturing formations where there is an organizing logic. They might be very elementary or very complex, but I don't have perfect closure. And the question of why they are an assemblage does not necessarily entail an enormously complex highly charged like it is with the... So it's like a, it's a, it's an instrument. And then the task of interpretation also will be, well, what kind of an assemblage is it? You know, there's a lot of, these are, for me, they are working tools. 
they are the tools of a craftsperson, you know? How do I work? How do I begin to discover all these other things that are happening? And then I, want, I do want to work with this notion of novel organizing logics. Now, organizing logic does not demand that you have closure, you see. Yeah. Now, that's a very good point because one of the, the... I wanted to show you some of these specialized assemblages. So one of them was... And again, I work on friction, all right? So it, it is about immobile activists. But activists is part of the story. Immobile human rights activists. Immobile environmental activists. In other words, activists that are working on some of our global whatever, you know, challenges... But they're immobile, and at the extreme, I take the extreme case, immobile, non-cosmopolitan, obsessed, in other words, really non-cosmopolitan, with a local torturer in their city or in their jail with a local factory polluting their water. And I try to ask myself, well, I ask myself a question. Do these activists in today's era, where there is a subjective dimension of the global, we're far more open to the possibility of a subjective global than we were, you know, 20 years ago. Now, we have the global entertainment industry, we have multiple instrumentalities, but there's also a subjective dimension. And so I ask myself, do these immobile, provincial, non-cosmopolitan obsessives dealing, however, with global challenges, can they constitute globalities? How could you put, uh, can I just, yeah, finish? How could you put Marco? Yeah, well, there we go. Yeah, but that has already... Yeah, but see, that is easy. That's easy. Comandante Marcos, forget... Everybody said the first cyber war that I'm talking about people you've never heard of, people who are moreover not interested in Amnesty International. That's not where they are at. I mean, believe me, in Latin America, when I was living there doing some of these military, you have people like that. They are really... Their obsession is that torturer, you know, and they, they are not. So Comandante Marcos was, a, was something that then became a narrative. You know that Comandante Marcos was not on email, for God's sakes. People still, I still read that, you know. Comandante Marcos was on email. Hell no, he wasn't on email. He wrote that were passed through the muddy mountains by others. And then you had that great, I can't believe it, in Mexico. I wrote so many times about it, this, this cyber operation, very tiny little thing nobody had heard of. And they then passed it, then, then it becomes rhizomatic. But Comandante Marco was stuck in the mud. No way that he was an email. And it would have been, I mean, no. So, you know, but then Comandante Marco, maybe that's what you were thinking of before it enters that. Comandante Marcos, you know, that wasn't, it might or might not have gone that way, but he chose it strategically because of the NAFTA and all of that. Now, but I'm talking about people who may not be on email, who may not speak English, and my question is, can they constitute globalities? And I say yes, under certain conditions, and that's what I mean. They have to be activists and it has to be global things. And the, and the globality that comes about is a subjective one, which is that an awareness, wow, town after town, village, there are people like me, you know. It's not necessarily that they don't want to go travel and see those people. They're immobile. They're too poor. They're too persecuted. They have too many children, whatever the reason. So I push myself on the extreme case, right? So in that case, you know, Abril, once Comandante Marcos thing goes global through the Arizona, 
then it's already a different, these people have never gone global in that sense, you know. So I try, I, I've written quite a bit about this actually, in this chapter seven in this uh, book. Um, and I also then, then say, what would Amnesty International be without these people on the ground? They'll, they'll have one tortured body to report, but that is what Amnesty, that is what Amnesty can work with. You know, they don't need, okay, the only site that matters here is like a thousand tortured bodies. It's not like the corporations, you know. It only matters if we can sell a billion Coca-Colas in China. You know. No, one. And that, then, you know, there are conditionalities for this globality. It's not just a nice sort of thing of, no. And under, so I really try to nail it down in the extreme condition and the non-cosmopolitan, which I think is totally fine, you know. Now, at that point, you must recognize that's the other side, Amnesty and Oxfam has developed all these technologies which allow people, even on very elementary you know, <coughs> bandwidth, to actually download and upload. They have, Amnesty in the last 10 years has been amazing. It has set up a network to Forest Watch. People know it, Forest Watch. Forest Watch says with indigenous people who don't speak English, they're not on email, they don't write, <laughs> and they don't read. They are the front line. They know when something is happening long before. And then through a whole chain, it winds up in Washington, etc. Yes? Yeah, I've been very interested in this work. I work on political asylum, and I, uh, I, I found this whole argument so interesting in that case. Many people applying for political asylum are the people to family, that they arrive somewhere seeking vacation with very little awareness. <coughs> Talk about not being, not awareness beyond your local torturer, even of the local torturer in any larger terms. Just yeah. the fact that there you go, right, right. Oh, sure, it's an international, not a global law. It's an international law. The law is an international yeah. law. The Geneva. Yeah. Yeah. So they're asked to produce themselves. They're subject yeah. to yeah. 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 at this global level. Yeah. And, uh, and I've been thinking about... It's supranational, strictly speaking, you know? I mean, the, absolute, the, convention, the convention is supranational. Oh, it's international. Yeah, oh. I mean the, the subjectivity... Oh, no, that, yeah, that is global. Right, the inform that's sort of an informal condition that is very powerful. See, informal is very powerful here also, not always, but it is. But it's not formalized. You know, people sort of misunderstand when I say informal. But you're absolutely right. That subjectivity is a globality, absolutely. But you, 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 that's a very interesting juxtaposition that they're asked, you know, to produce themselves as the subject that is the asylum seeker. That too, in a way. Actually, I use culture as a category, but I certainly open it up, and I think that's now. So I, for instance, talk, and in, in this again, this is in this new book also, but it's been in articles, etc. I argue that what would global finance be 
without the kind of thick culture that the financial centers are. I, one of my slides was precisely about that here. The financial center, which is part of the articulation of the global finance, is a very, it's a frontier zone where two actors from different worlds encounter each, each other, where there are no established rules for their engagement. So a frontier space, and, um, but only put in very technical terms. So a thick national culture of investment that resists the standardizing global culture encounters these globalizing, and they have to do work. And so I talk about how there is cultural work to be done in each of these financial centers as they become articulated with the global system. And then I have a very technical 10 pages in one, one of my chapters there, where I show, this is based on research, I mean, and it gets very, but I talk about culture this year. There. So I, uh, the, at, at some point, the supervisory system for global finance, et cetera, is, is externalized to the firms themselves. The firms have to demonstrate that their risk value assessment models are fine. The global regime, the international regime, really tells them, okay, 98% of the time you've got to be right. This is to avoid a global catastrophe. Okay, so, so um, the supervisor and the financial services firms meet to establish, you know, if how, the, how that, 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 that model, that proprietary model is working. Now they have put a lot of money into these models, you know, the firms, et cetera. And then, so if they cannot explain a negative outcome, they take the route of an exogenous fact, i.e. something anomalous, an earthquake, a revolution, I mean, you can't believe it. And suddenly it's a folkloric setting between top people because the supervisors, they know a lot, you know, and, the, and so they bring in, they trot in newspaper articles, say, well, you see there was a revolution there, or they privatize in our model in order to clear themselves because otherwise they have to chuck the model and start from scratch, and, and you know, this. So I talk about culture, but it's not the settings that you might read about, you know, and I need the term culture. But it is it's very, and I think that without those terms, that is a very powerful term for me in my analysis, given that I am, you know, I'm always working on extreme zones, which are so often captured like in the financial setting and highly technical and I don't know what, and you know, I, I hope I answered your question yes. or not. I do also think that ethnography is a very important part of yeah, documenting, you know. Now, I am not an ethnographer myself, but any other question? Yes. Um, and do introduce yourself. You didn't I'm introduce. Sorry, I'm into, I'm, I'm into a folklorist, I see. Yes. I'm a PhD student in Right, right, of course. Specifically the oceans. I look at the oceans. And the way that they're currently being territorialized in extra-legal fashion. Yeah. I mean, I, I Partly for the resources and that kind of stuff, right? Extraction of resources. Um, the United States declared an exclusive economic zone, which then became encoded in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which they refused to sign. Yeah. And as we saw last week, the United States has now declared the entire ocean its territorial Right. If it's not territorialized, it must be our territory. Right. 
Well, exactly. No, this is very important. You know this, Terry, absolutely. But um, this was one of the issues that came out in this law meeting with, uh, with the, the people who are doing the fisheries stuff, you know, because they are continuously running into the formal jurisdictions that, of course, also vary. And if they would not handle it outside of those formalized systems, there was no way of negotiating, you know, between Canada and the U.S. That's a very hot, actually, set of negotiations. So, I mean, look, I, there are multiple instances of non-territorialized territories, and some of them are the, the term deterritorialization, which is usually used for electronic, right? But you are, I like that. <laughs> You're going back to ground. <laughs> right. And I see, I think we, we need, I hope you're writing a dissertation on this, because we need this kind of stuff to come into the picture. It's been, you know, the whole discussion in the, in, in the globalization literature, there is so much ignorance of detail and finer points. You know, that the thing where I said about the global firm, that we don't have a global firm, most people who are doing the political economy of globalization don't even know that. It's not a level at which they think. If it is de facto there, you know, that is enough that for me to know about. And, and the same thing with this, you know. Now, you, your problematic is a very interesting one. And I have, I mean, I, I have transversely dealt with it in the following sense, in the sense of the disjuncture, which is very profound, between the speech acts of the sovereign and the actual operational logics now, this of the sovereign. Now, the sovereign here really is the executive branch of government. So in, I just did, for those of you who are interested, Descent, you know the magazine Descent? January, February issue. I did, it's also in my book. I did a list of all the global logics that now run deep inside the executive branch of government that are not part of its self-representation, et cetera. So, so, so there is a real disjuncture between what the sovereign says, what the executive says, and the actual operational terrain within which they function. For instance, the IMF and WTO only deal with the executive branch of government, which means that as IMF and WTO gained power in the 80s and 90s, the executive branch of government gained power because of globalization. The thing that I was talking about before, the Ministry of Finance, the central banks, they gained power because of globalization. The legislature, however, lost power. Now, the thing that you are talking about reminds me of this law meeting at the University of Michigan. Well, those were the issues, actually. They said, you know, that they're lawyers, and so they are not going to take a more structural perspective that I might take. That doesn't help them. You know? They only know we've got to get an agreement. And so we've got to leave aside what are often the speech acts, whether fully formalized or not, of the sovereign. And I would say that what you are doing in my reading, that's path-breaking research. Because this is something that we just need to get into. The lawyers have been doing work on this for a long time. You know, they have to because it's part of their, you know. But we need also a more social science approach. And we can't just leave it to the lawyers. Let's put it that way. So I cannot answer much more because I really think we need to figure out. I mean, we know from olden times, I've written about that, when Grotius declares famous, you know, resolution, uh, mare liberum, etc. Yeah, right, for the empires, you know. So the empires wanted free oceans. Ocean is mare liberum. But <laughs> the rest, those who may have made, forget it, they were, not in, they were not actors sitting around the table. So when empires cease being empires and other empires arise, then there is a conflict. So the question of the oceans is an old, it's one that has, I mean, today it has become acute. Today's 
much more acute than in the past. But it's a great subject. Any other question? Last question. Yeah. <laughs> One last question. <laughs> I have a question. Yes. <laughs> Actually, you have multiple questions. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to pose one. Yeah. What do you think about all the talking now about deglobalization? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you look, there are, there are two, two answers, two, two elements to my answer. One of them, I do think, you heard me say that on the radio program today, right? That this phase that we've lived to these last 20 years is the brutal phase. And the financial crisis indicates the limits of this brutal. I mean, they made that crisis. They abused their own power, right? So for me, it's a trajectory. So it's the equivalent today, but only less legible than the manufacturing towns in Britain in the first industrial era, where the brutality was in your face, right? So now, so in that sense, the deglobalizing, what some people call the deglobalizing, is partly uh, moving back and potentially a rearranging, a civilizing of the system. Now, I also think that part of the deglobalizing is simply wrong. I mean, a lot of the deglobalizing people are saying, what I said before about finance, the state is back in big form into the economy. Yeah, but it depends on economic sector, you know, and most of the money, most of the money that the state has put in the economy has gone to finance. And these, the UK financial system is not a British system. So it means rescuing. This is the executive branch of government, you know, its positionality. It means, in fact, that the, that the executive branch is rescuing the global financial system, and that is why they need it to be happening in many, many different countries. And that is why the stimulus package, which is a different kind of, that moves more into the national economy. They couldn't get any agreement at the G20 for it. I mean, these are just inc incidents. But my main answer is that, yes, there is a moving back. The financial system has really uh, you know, hit itself against its own abuse of power. And so there is a sense of we need to restructure certain things. The state reintervenes. But then it becomes an empirical question. Is the state reintervening to renationalize? Or is it intervening to find a more survivable version of a global system? And here with trade, I think we see a nationalizing in the traditional sense. And so we could talk about deglobalizing. And with finance, no, we don't when, see. When you read, where, where, nowadays, uh, some venues, some prominent venues like economists, right? yeah. and they are obsessed with this danger of deglobalization. Yes, yes, they are. Uh, with trade. One, no, but Walden Bello, who is a very admirable person, he also wrote a book, you know, deglobalizing. And I mean, I. But that I, has a, has a different yeah, yeah. But I also think that, that, that the economists, I mean, it's certain kinds of economists, there it becomes a sociological question also. Who are the economists who get to say what they think, and who are all the economists that don't get to say what they think, you know? Now, I happen to think, I, I am not a nationalist, I must tell you. I like the notion of free trading markets, we, but we just haven't had them. I haven't seen, except in villages and you know, the farmer's market, the Adam Smith market has nothing to do with this market that we're dealing with. Those are not. Those are occasions to extract from everybody else. Glo when you globalize finance, it's a mechanism to bring in all the resources and then concentrate and centralize. So, 
So the, the, I, I believe in democratic market economies. I think that that's a good way to go. But, and some of these economists are saying that, but some of them are really talking more the, in the conventional zone. You know, We shouldn't set up trade barriers because our technical economic systems are de facto cross-border. You see, that's the problem with a lot of the rescuing that is happening. We're not rescuing the national, we're rescuing global systems. And, and um, so we need to reposition it. But say Joe Stiglitz, who was actually the one who recruited me to Columbia, and um, he, he's a conventional economist, but he's a very radical politically, actually, much more. He's too far too radical for Obama, let's put it that way, you know, just as an indication. And um, he believes that the only way to go is market economy. But he also says, you know, for instance, I was, we did together a rah-rah thingy with, uh, on water, the privatizing of water, you know, with all these directors of water economy. And he then said, I will speak now as, a, as an economist, and I will give you the tools as to why you can argue that it doesn't make sense to privatize water. Why? Because water is a natural monopoly. So if you privatize it, you're going to end up with a monopoly. Right? So might as well keep it in the government. So he is an economist, you know, who sees, but he also believes in market economies, but he does not believe in putting water into the market. Nothing that is a natural monopoly should be out there in the market because then you're going to create distortions. You know, so, uh, you know, there are some of these discussions are intelligent and others are just, you know, they're a bit superficial and, and you, know, you know, these deglobalizing discussions. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Si quieres ahora comer algo, guardamos algo, porque no va a haber mucho tiempo, tenemos...